This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 10th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hamburg, site of the G20. Hamburg, city of bridges and canals. Hamburg, land of analogies. New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio was there, and he got to talking about the New York subways, and he said, you have people of all faiths and people of all backgrounds, and I like it as a metaphor because it's not perfect. It's not necessarily the way you want to live to be the sardine in the sardine can, but what you notice is there is a working harmony. And then he went on to add, that said, do not visit. Engineers say four more Germans will crash the F4, 5, C, and E and the shuttle to Times Square. But it really is nice. The German interior minister also made an analogy about the protesters during the G20, the brutality with which extremely violent anarchists have proceeded in Hamburg since Thursday is unfathomable and scandalous, he told reporters, adding that the militants weren't activists, but rather, quote, despicable violent extremists, just like neo-Nazis and Islamist terrorists. You know what? He's German. Maybe he doesn't really get the seriousness of throwing out the Nazi analogies. Maybe he doesn't know what the Nazis did. But I remember when Eddie Izzard was on the show, and he spoke of Hamburg in relation to the Beatles as sort of a, a hothouse or a petri dish or as a training ground. I think Hamburg made the Beatles, and I've, they did eight-hour shows, Macht Show. The guy kept shouting, Macht Show, so that <laughs> between the strippers, they would do these furious uh, amphetamine-filled shows. But to me, the metaphor for Hamburg is that it is a metaphor for metaphors. It is a training ground, a stomping ground, and the underground, if you listen to de Blasio. It was a proven ground for the president's diplomatic efforts and possibly the burial ground for unified progress on global warming. One day, I hope to visit Hamburg, to breathe in its air, to infuse my spirits with the spirit of analogy. And then, and only then, can I conclude Hamburg, kind of like a cross between Seattle and Cincinnati. On the show today, I spiel about Kellyanne Conway's appearance on some morning shows. I usually don't want to take the Conway bait, but what I will do is I will attempt to demonstrate an effective method of Conway management and juxtapose that to a case of Kellyanne's strategy gone wrong. But first, within the past 48 hours, the president has used Twitter to spread some Fox News talking points to insult the media over a hypothetical regarding Chelsea Clinton, to retweet Sean Hannity insulting Chelsea's mom, to tout a cybersecurity plan, and then dismiss the very same cybersecurity plan with the Russians. None of this technically violates Twitter's terms of service, but Seth Maskett says there are plenty of Trump tweets that do just that. Donald Trump has argued that his use of Twitter is not presidential, it's modern-day presidential. 
Just like my stepping on a rake and hitting me in the face is not stepping on a rake and hitting me in the face. It's modern day stepping on a rake and hitting me in the face. Well, there is a political scientist, Seth Maskett of the University of Denver, who argues that the Twitter-Trump tie should be severed. And he thinks that request should come from inside the House. In other words, Twitter should kick off Donald Trump. Seth Maskett is that man. He also has a blog or a group blog or something, a collective called Mischiefs of Faction. Seth, define that. Hi, how are you? Define that thing for me. Hi, how are you? Yes, uh, it's a, an academic blog. Uh, there's eight of us on there. We're called the Mischiefs of Faction. It's part of Vox.com. Yeah, that term comes from uh, the 10th Federalist Paper that James Madison wrote, uh, referring to some of the problems caused by political parties. Clearly, uh, when you name a political science blog, it's like when you name a cover band, you got to go with like a really deep cut of one of the lyrics and then you're cool. <laughs> exactly. It might be a little too deep at times, but yes. So before we get to the argument that you lay out in Pacific Standard, which is where I saw your Trump Twitter argument, um, you you start in that piece, and I want to do this here, you lay out the evidence that uh, Trump is abusing Twitter, abusing the rules. How do you think he violates their own rules of use? Well, they have a number of, of usage rules that they have rules regarding copyrights and trademarks, regarding spam, and also regarding abusive behavior. To quote from their own rules, uh, you may not incite or engage in the targeted abuse or harassment of others. Honestly, that describes a lot of what he does on Twitter. He, he threatens people. He insults them. He, he's done this you know, back before he was a presidential candidate, but also as a presidential candidate, even as president, he has insulted other you know, members of Congress. He's threatened James Comey tried to intimidate Sally Yates. I mean, he's, he's done a number of things on Twitter. Even just this morning, he was uh, referring to the haters. He, he's had a wonderful time at uh, the G20, regardless of them. So what is the difference between a threat and bragging or a taunt or trash talk? I mean, if that is counted as a threat, I think we'd have to suspend every NBA player's Twitter account. <laughs> it's a, it's a fuzzy line in there and these aren't necessarily legal definitions or at least they you know they don't necessarily have to be for the purposes of Twitter they can decide who is in violation of these and, and who isn't there was a case where I, I believe Milo Yiannopoulos who had uh, threatened some people or had basically called for people to be insulted online Twitter actually saw that as reason enough to uh, suspend his account. And there have been other people who where Twitter has suspended their accounts simply because it seems like they're trying to encourage online harassment of people. Yes. But if you look at if you look at the people whose accounts have been suspended, there there are a few famous ones. It would seem that all their actions, whatever is written in the rules and harassment's a broad term uh, for Twitter to actually suspend the account, the harassment, it would seem to me, has to go pretty far, much further than whatever Trump said about Sally Yates or James Comey. I I think that's fair to say, but it's also that anything that the president says is going to be, uh, you know, have a much different interpretation and have a much broader reach than anything a private citizen says on Twitter, uh, just by virtue of the attention he's going to get and the fact that this is a government agency, essentially a branch of the federal government insulting someone and essentially, you know, challenging someone else's claim to citizenship or challenging someone else's voice online. But that's an argument. Isn't that just putting forth an argument? Maybe an argument that's phrased bluntly or improperly. And certainly he trades in false information. But 
we have a First Amendment and that's what so many people do on Twitter. And I don't know, it seems to me that some deference should be given to a president, even if a president insists on shooting himself in his own foot on this platform. I, I'm a little fuzzy on uh, the use of the First Amendment here, which is to, to protect the rights of citizens to speak their mind, particularly on political subjects. This is uh, about you know whether the president has a right to freely say what he wants on a private company's uh, social media servers. I don't know that that is something that the Constitution is designed to protect. No, it definitely isn't. You're right. On strict grounds, you couldn't. He couldn't sue in a court of law. I, w- I would suspect, based on the First Amendment. But I think, in lay terms, when we talk about First Amendment rights, sometimes we, we misuse it. But uh, people feel mm. that they have the right to express themselves. So I think that the argument's an interesting, as they say, thought experiment. Uh, I think, in practical terms, Twitter would be slitting its own throat if they were to kick the president off. I think it would be a terrible signal for investors. I know that everyone on the right, which seems to be a lot of Twitter, would come after them mightily. Practical terms, I don't think it should happen. I don't think it will happen. In terms of, you know, in a uh, a, a perfect world or a world so perfect as to have Donald Trump as the president, I don't know what kind of world that is. I don't know, some level of imperfection. I, I do not think that he should be kicked off Twitter for a little bit of what Julia Azari says, which is, hey, this is an insight into his mind. But also, you know, your article and uh, the one you were responding to lays out how Trump is really hurting himself by using Twitter. I mean, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe if Twitter <laughs> is his undoing, and I don't mean this just as a partisan or someone who wants Trump to leave office, maybe that best serves democracy. He's, you know, bearing his soul. We get a good insight. And next election, we get to vote against him because of some of the things he tweeted. I think there's a perfectly valid argument for that. I just don't know that Twitter itself, you know, which is is a company, is I don't know that they are required to be complicit in this. Mm-hmm. They're not required to transmit what you know the, the president's personal thoughts at any given moment. I mean, I, I I draw some historical analogies there. So like Franklin Roosevelt was really good at at using radio, and John F. Kennedy was really good at using television. Those those were integral parts of their campaigns and and parts of their presidency. Trump and Twitter is a different thing in that this is simply one company. Uh, it's not like he's necessarily mastered an entire medium. He's mastered a, a thing that one company produces. And I don't think they're under any requirement to continue to transmit his thoughts. And I think it would be actually pretty fascinating and in, in some ways a, a moment of great integrity if they just said, this is not what we designed this, this program for and we think that you are abusing this. I'm not expecting them to do this anytime soon. I understand, yeah, he's he's fantastic advertising for them. I think it would be uh, certainly a welcome pushback. Do you think it is hurting him? I think that the last, one of his last uh, high-profile tweets of uh, him body-slamming a CNN-headed Vince McMahon, that was the sort of bomb that blew up in his face. But, you know, if you're a bomb maker, every once in a while that's going to happen. And there are a lot of groups from the IRA to the uh, Gorillas of the Shining Path who could tell you that bomb making works. It's just collateral damage. So I- I'm not even sure if I in- totally subscribe to this idea, but I think you can make the case that overall, what he's done with Twitter, despite the blowups and the missteps, overall, he has used it to inject uh, a question mark into what a significant number of Americans think of as fact, and that serves him. He's used it to really reach and solidify his base, and that serves him. He is just dominating the ether, which is a phrase that Brooke Gladstone uses, which is, you know, a Putin technique and a technique just to, even if sometimes the specific things that you say are wrong, overall, having 
so much of your information out there serves his purpose. So that's my question to you. Do you think that he'd be better off without Twitter? Today, I think he would be. I mean, I think uh, Twitter was probably a real help for him during the early parts of the Republican nomination campaign. A lot of the even conservative media was not very much in his camp, at least early on. There were a lot of other candidates. Twitter was very good for him because he could use it to draw attention to himself. He could say some bombastic thing that would then control the news cycle for the next few hours or days. And then he'd be off to the next thing, uh, making up something else to say on Twitter that would that would draw attention. I think today, on balance, it probably hurts him. I mean, we just got a, a jobs report today that was actually pretty positive, you know, showing economic growth. Uh, the crime rate is relatively low. We're currently not in a major shooting war with anyone. And yet he still has an approval rating in the high 30s. Mm-hmm. I think Twitter is part of the reason why. It riles up his base. It gets them excited for him. But it also probably turns more people against him than for him. I think that most people agree with what you say, that Twitter's hurting him now, that maybe certainly during the campaign it helped, but now all he does is step on landmines. But I I think something else is going on, which is that most people who are in, say, the fact-based media look at his tweets, and occasionally there are some that are horrific, Mika Brzezinski, and people not even in the fact-based media, just the layman says, wow, that's wrong. But there is this constant stream of disinformation and undermining the media that without that, he'd have nothing. He'd have no counter-argument to the Russia investigation or a a bunch of other things. And I think we, in the fact-based community, maybe thought leaders, discount that, and we don't give it enough credit for helping him. You're right, he could use the news media, but they have their own microphones. I mean, they will decide what gets out. And he can't do, he doesn't want to do a press conference or a speech every day where he just gives this drip, drip, drip of everything about Russia is a lie. I think without Twitter, again, I'm going to use the phrase dominating the ether in this way and making us question up and down and right and left, he'd be in a lot more trouble with a lot of these investigations. You know, it's entirely possible. It would be actually a fascinating experiment if he were to go quiet on Twitter for a while and we could see, but he doesn't seem to have any interest in doing that anytime soon. It it would be interesting to watch that unfold. And there is certainly something that he, you know, he's been able to use Twitter for to constantly, you know, fan the flames about uh, undermining mainstream news organizations. But again, he would probably be doing that in other places, too. He he has a willing ally, for the most part, in Fox News. They have been happy to interview him. He's generally been happy to go on on TV with them or even do just uh, microphone interviews with them, in which he says that, you know, all the other news organizations are are biased, are running fake news, and they're, they're happy to promote that framework. That's very consistent with what they've been arguing for years. Seth Maskett's a political science professor at the University of Denver. He's one-eighth of the Mischiefs of Faction blog, which Vox sometimes runs. And he writes for the Pacific Standard, where he wrote about Donald Trump and Twitter. A uh, Can this marriage last, I guess should be the subtitle. Thank you there, Seth. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Let's go right to Good Morning America, where host George Stephanopoulos had White House advisor Kellyanne Conway on, and he asked her about the big question of the day. You once said that no Trump campaign officials had contact with the Russians during the campaign. Now you're saying they do. How do you explain that? 
Kellyanne, thanks for joining us this morning. We just showed some of those denials from the president, from the vice president, Don Jr., about any contacts. Back in December, you also denied any contacts between the campaign and Russians. I want to show our audience. Absolutely not. And I discussed that with the president-elect just last night. Those conversations never happened. I hear people saying it like it's a fact on television. That is just not only inaccurate and false, but it's dangerous. Does the president and, and it does undermine our democracy. It did turn out to be a fact. So who misled you and why did Don Jr., Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort allow those public denials to stand for so many months? Now, I want to caution you. Kellyanne is about to talk. She will use words which will fit together in what we in the West have come to regard as sentence structure. She will not, when the sentence calls for, say, a verb, blurt out or deploy an air horn. She will not, when the sentence calls for a subjunctive clause, throw a smoke bomb and belay into a hole in the ceiling. That is not her tact. But she will utilize words within the standard definition of words to create a new form of communication, which I believe is designed to create vibrations in the brain which block normal functioning of parts of the thalamus, the hypothalamus, and Wernicke's area, which is involved in language comprehension. Here, let's listen to her. I think that Tom Yamas, your colleague, put it best. He said that these were vague and ambiguous statements, that Don Jr. was not aware of the lawyer's name before he got there, and that the conversation quickly changed to what seemed to be the entire purpose of the meeting for that woman, which was Russian adoption. No information was received that was meaningful or helpful, and no action was taken. Now, wait a minute. Let's go over this. Uh, She says, your colleague, ABC's Tom Yamas, said it best. Here was Tom Yamas's piece pay attention to what he was saying. But he says her statements were vague, ambiguous, and made no sense. Yamis, in talking about how vague and ambiguous it was, wasn't opining or even characterizing. He was quoting Don Jr.'s official denial. Let us diagram Kellyanne's answer. You got an Etch-A-Sketch? Question. You said you never met with the Russians, but now you admit you did. Well, there's a good answer for that, and the answer is provided by your own colleague and the lawyer whose name we didn't know. So there's nothing to deny, which you really can't deny, because if we knew the lawyer's name, then she'd be a named source. And you're always relying on unnamed sources. Don't deny it. Now who's in the state of denial, George? That, by the way, was part of the first answer out of Kellyanne's mouth. She went on to answer some questions that George didn't ask about if collusion had been proved. She touted Trump and Putin's cybersecurity agreement, which Trump himself decried. But this was a very good interview by Stephanopoulos. He didn't ask about any of those side issues. He asked, in a few different ways, a really tight and pointed question. We know from Don Jr.'s own admission that he sought the meeting with the Russian because she would provide damaging information with Hillary Clinton. How can you say that is not at least an attempt at working with the Russians to hurt the Clinton campaign to help the Trump campaign? Conway's answer, well, Don Jr. didn't ask for the meeting or know the lawyer's name. I'm also sure he never asked for her hat size or knew what the name of the cartoon bear was in the 1980 Moscow Olympics. But at the end of the interview, a blessed thing happened. It ended. Listen to this part. Kellyanne, we have to go. The, the, the information was sought from the campaign, and those denials were allowed to stand for many months. That's the bottom line. Thanks very much for your time Look, this morning. I wasn't in the meeting. I wasn't in the meeting, but people amended their disclosure forms. And I think the big bombshell this morning is Jim Comey disclosing confidential information, conversations he had with the president of the United States in his, quote, private memos. That's something Americans should really focus on. Kellyanne Conway, thanks very Thank much. Thank you. Because Stephanopoulos' questions were on one subject, 
relentlessly on target and didn't veer from the one question, a question he couldn't get an answer to, but the whole thing worked. Her evasions to viewers of Good Morning America seemed like evasions. Who's talking about Comey? Why why is she bringing up Trump's meeting at the G20? Anytime she had non sequiturs, because he was so focused, they seemed like non sequiturs. But on CNN, Chris Cuomo took a different approach with Kellyanne. And time wound up folding on itself and slightly bending the universe. Aren't you the least bit reluctant, if not embarrassed, that you now talk about Russia more than you talk about America? No. Doesn't it, this bother look, Kellyanne, this there? matters. You have Donald Jr. who went from saying, I never met with I anybody America from matters. Russia. And then the two proceeded to debate matters vital to the interest of America, which matters for 35 minutes. 35. It was quite the Q&A, with Kellyanne reminding Chris of a few things, like who she is and where she was. I'm not How bashing does it help? CNN. Oh, please. That's Chris, what you guys I'm not do is bash. CNN. I'm I don't on understand CNN. it. I mean, thank you for the ratings. At one point, Kellyanne had to tell Chris to turn his A's into Q's. Do you think that anything that you're talking about changed a single vote anywhere? Do you think Hillary Clinton I don't know why your head has to go there. I nonsense. want to know if Russia My tried to, to get inside. My head has to go there. You've been talking about it for months. Because you don't care if Russia was trying to get inside your campaign to affect you the election. You don't know what I care about. Why don't you ask me? Uh, I just did. Just That's a question. There was a question mark at the end of it. At the end of this interview, Kellyanne did something you rarely see on a commercial-based news program. She staged a sit-in. Your people say you have to go, to by the way. So you make sure that the White there House are, press well, office doesn't yell at go. me. All right? I'm not going to let this That's go. That's fine. You I'm can have all the time go. you want. Chris, go stop ahead. being so sensitive. Well, listen, I got people yelling listen, at me in my ear that you have to go. <laughs> and finally, go she did, leaving us all groggy and bewildered, a little less oriented, and more stupefied than when it started. Having watched that, I, I'm not sure of anything anymore. Well, maybe this one fact. The bear's name was Misha. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson doesn't care if Trump is on or off Twitter, but if he goes on Instagram, you can't use hashtag no makeup. Chris Berube, just producer, says Trump could stay on Twitter, but he should really stop basing most of his policies on what he finds in Yahoo Answers. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, loves that Trump quote when he said, nobody knew flappy birds could be so complicated. The gist, let's just hope all the president's flame wars are Twitter only. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.